0: This is an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC
1: News correspondent Aaron Katursky. We hear repeatedly and again today about the importance of testing in the reopening of the country. The World Health Organization issued new guidance on when it's okay to lift coronavirus lockdown orders. That guidance says a government should meet several conditions, including that its health system can detect, test, isolate, and treat every case and trace every contact. That means keeping track of and then isolating anyone who has been in close quarters with a coronavirus carrier. This test, track, isolate trio has been used to successfully contain any number of diseases. But there are real questions whether the United States can pull it off. We're joined from Charlotte, North Carolina, by Dr. Marcus Plesha, the Chief Medical Officer at the Association of State and Territorial Health Officials. And you've said, Dr. Plesha, the country is going to need an army of COVID
2: trackers. We feel that, that what the nation is going to need in order to get to a different place with the current COVID epidemic is very. Um, wide-scale containment measures is what we refer to them as. And basically those are standard infection control measures that state health departments do all the time, but we've never had to do them at this scale. Uh, Usually it's just dealing with relatively small outbreaks. Um, And so what we feel that the nation needs to do now is scale up the workforce we have of people who are capable of doing infection control. And infection control is basically identifying people who are sick and then tracing the people that those folks have been in close contact with and contacting them and monitoring them to make sure that they don't become sick as well. Do we
1: have all these people in the United States currently?
2: Well, we have people in every state and local health department who uh, do contact tracing. It's just the numbers are relatively small, Um, but it doesn't require we don't, we don't really need highly trained people to do a lot of the work that's that's involved in contact tracing. <clears throat> and so the feeling is that there are a lot of people uh, in the United States right now who are out of work, and we could probably hire some of those people into public health departments, and that's how we would build up the workforce that we need. So you don't need any special training in public health in order to pull this off? Well, what we would do is establish teams. And so we would have a team of four or five people. One person on the team would be trained in public health and have that expertise. And we think that the capacity is there for that with what's existing in health departments, with what we can bring to the table from Centers for Disease Control, and with also maybe some uh, relatively small additional hiring from universities or other places where we have other uh, trained public health staff. For the uninitiated, can you give us a basic understanding
1: of contact tracing, what it means, how involved it is, and why it's important?
2: Yeah, so, you know, first of all, you identify somebody who's a case, and you do that because somebody has symptoms, uh, they get tested, and you determine that they've been infected. And then you would do a, do a careful history with that person, uh, getting them to recall all the people they'd come in contact with, with the last few days. And, you know, this isn't just walking by somebody. This would be, uh, you know, a contact with somebody where you were in close proximity and talking and uh, or or. uh you know, sharing a meal, or whatever it is you might be doing. And then once a list of those people have been identified, then the contact tracer would start contacting each of those people, ideally by telephone, um, but if necessary, they could go out to the community and find them as well. They would interview that person to see um, if they remember the the contact with the person who was ill and their perspective of, you know, what kind of contact that was. And then the contact tracer would make a decision based on protocols about whether there was really enough of a contact that the person might be at risk to have gotten infected themselves.
1: What are the consequences if the country does not do this kind of widespread, large-scale contact tracing you're talking about?
2: Well, the concern is that once we get through this current surge of cases that we're currently seeing, uh, you know, there'll be a short, quiet spell, and then we'll start seeing infection going up again because... The virus is still out there, although it seems like a lot of people have been exposed. If, if you see the, the terrible stories going on across our communities, actually, the proportion of the United States that's been exposed is really quite small. So there's plenty. There's a lot of people out there who have not been exposed to COVID who would still be uh, at risk for getting an infection. And we could see the exact same thing we're seeing right now, maybe even worse. Dr. Marcus Plesha at the Association
1: of State and Territorial Health Officials. Now, before anybody starts contact tracing on the kind of scale he's talking about, the country still needs to make up for its shortcomings in diagnostic testing. Today, a drive-through testing site in New Jersey began a new method that involves spit. We're joined by Jason Feldman, the founder of Vault Health, which is administering these saliva tests. How do they work? well it's
3: quite easy actually we give you access to our website at vaulthealth.com covid you answer three questions put your address in uh put a credit card in and then we send you overnight a saliva collection device that you will not open until you join one of our zoom practitioner rooms so you will actually be collecting saliva in front of a nurse or another medical professional on a zoom room They will instruct you through the process to be able to actually spit in this device and then cap it off with a preservative and drop it back in an overnight package and send it to the lab in New Jersey. It's pretty quick. Remarkably quick and a lot less invasive than the traditional nasal swab, right? And so much safer. One of the big fears and frankly the reason that we did this is that patient to practitioner transmission is a very high risk. You know, two people that have been exposed potentially, to the COVID virus and could share it with each other is quite alarming. And so by keeping a telemedicine visit between the two of you, we're not only keeping you both safe, but we're also preserving very scarce PPE, which we know is a very big problem in the healthcare system today.
1: What's the turnaround time once the saliva sample comes back to the lab?
3: Based on the amount of tests coming through, the, the response time has been between 48 and 72 hours. It's just the lab is moving as fast as they can. They're increasing as much capacity as possible. And it, it is their intent to be able to give uh, patients the ability to know positive or negative as fast as possible.
1: How scalable is it? Can this go nationwide?
3: Can it be replicated tens of millions of times? It is ready to go immediately to every state that we can reach and to as many people as we can get. Now the lab's capacity is growing. They're adding new chemicals in the, in the, in the testing process as fast as they can upstream in their supply chain. They're working with every provider they can to get more equipment. And the idea is to be able to go 10, 20, 30, 50,000 tests per day and get it as big and as widespread as possible.
1: This is purely diagnostic, right? Right. You're not at the point where saliva is
3: detecting antibodies? That's right. This is this is an antigen test, which means positive or negative of the virus. Obviously, antibody testing is going to be another huge unlock for America and for the world, but for now, knowing whether or not you're positive or negative is really critical.
1: All right, that it is. Jason Feldman at Vault Health on the saliva test that the FDA just granted emergency authorization. The effects of keeping all of us at home were laid bare in the latest economic data. Retail sales plunged a record 8 as non-essential businesses across the country shuttered amid the coronavirus pandemic. Some states are trying to minimize foot traffic and time spent in stores that are open by prohibiting big box and grocery chains from selling non-essential items. Michigan is one of those states, and we're joined from the Michigan Chamber of Commerce by Dan Papineau. You're concerned that's not working.
4: Michigan businesses, even highly sophisticated ones, are having a hard time interpreting the order you know, what parts of their store can remain open? What items can they sell? What items can't they sell? Stores that have over 50,000 square feet. They had to cordon off certain sections of their store. So, those sections included the garden center, areas that sell flooring, uh, furniture, you, you know, the American flag. It's in the garden center. Can you buy it?
1: What's been the response from chamber members?
4: You know, in some stores, there have been threats that police officers will stand at each register and help the store determine what is an essential sale and what's not. You know, some stores have cordoned off much larger areas of the floor space than others because they're not sure what they can and can't sell. Uh, so it's, you know, it's going to be inevitable that the retail sales will decline and what's, you know, the consequence of that is is sales tax revenues decline. Uh, and in Michigan, sales tax revenues are uh, one of the biggest pillars that pay for, for state and local government. So as, we, as this plays out, uh, we need to really start thinking about the long-term effects on our, our, our economy and, our, and the individuals that live here in Michigan, and how, how are we going to recover from that? With our, our budget will see massive, massive cuts.
1: Dan out the Michigan Chamber of Commerce. Ahead, the impact on small businesses. And our chief medical correspondent, Dr. Jennifer Ashton, answers your questions about coronavirus. I'm Aaron Katursky. You're listening to an ABC News special.
0: This ABC News special continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19. What you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach.
5: Let's bring in ABC chief medical correspondent, Dr. Jen Ashton. And Dr. Jen, with talk now of how and when we can reopen potentially, what are we learning from other parts of the world who are starting to do that?
6: Well, Amy, all eyes are on Asia because they are a little ahead of us chronologically, and they're starting to go through these steps. And so their data and their experience will help to inform ours. So just recently released data out of China shows they've had 169 new cases, which is the highest they've had in the last five weeks as they slowly start to reopen. And we're seeing similar trends upwards from Hong Kong, Singapore and Taiwan. So we're to be following that closely yeah
5: and so what needs to be in place here for reopening to begin well i think the theory people have to
6: understand is that there will be widespread testing which will be critically important and that needs to be including people who have symptoms as well as don't have symptoms then we have to be able to do what's called contact tracing so test and trace. And then some social distancing measures will need to be maintained depending on both the area of the country and certain populations. So, for example, around nursing homes um, or more rural areas versus urban or suburban, all of that has
5: to be really fleshed out. And Jen, we know we, we have to get this right because what's at stake is life and death. It, exactly so major
6: tolls on people's health as well as the economy and the goal according to public health experts is to really strike a balance between minimizing the transmission of this virus um, and interrupting it and minimizing the impact on people's health and lives and in order to do that we have to be ready for the second
5: wave not if it hits but more likely when it hits when it hits all right yes we have big tasks ahead of us all dr Jen thanks so much we'll be checking in with you in just a bit. Well, in times of crisis, a plan of attack is critical. But what happens when government leaders clash on strategy? Well, that is happening in Texas right now over the COVID-19 pandemic between Governor Greg Abbott and Dallas County Judge Clay Jenkins. Joining us now is Judge Jenkins. And Judge, thanks for being with us today. Yesterday, you know that Dallas County reported its highest number of COVID-related deaths in a single day. So talk a little bit about what you're doing to prevent the spread
7: further. Sure. Sure. So we're very fortunate that uh, since uh, March 22nd, when I entered the state's first safer at home order, this basically shelter in place, similar to what you're seeing in New York and other places. Uh, Our our folks have responded and they have overwhelmingly uh, done that. They've stayed home, only gone out to exercise or go to the grocery store. And so we're seeing the benefit of that uh, as our curve is flattening. Uh, however, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done. So we, we worked with two of our hospitals, UT Southwestern and Parkland to create a super test lab. Uh, we need our federal partners to get us reagents uh, for those labs and we'll be able to test uh, thousands of people on a one-day turnaround with those labs. So testing is is real big right
5: now. Yeah, it certainly is across this country as well. Now, I want to ask you, Judge, is it fair to say that there is friction between you and Governor Abbott over this temporary field hospital at the Dallas Convention Center? Tell us what's going on there.
7: No, I I don't think so. You know, yesterday our hospitals wrote me a letter and they said that uh, they they did not uh, think they would need that because the safer at home uh, order that I put into place last month is working and we're, we're gonna be able to meet our capacity inside the existing hospitals. I uh, let the uh, governor's chief of staff know that uh, yesterday and so I, I don't see that there's a friction there. The friction in the past has been uh, as I moved uh, first Dallas County and then uh, North Texas into that safer at home structure uh, for about two weeks, the governor and the rest of the state were not with us on that. Mm. And so there was a lot of uh, uh, you know persuasion on my part to get the state uh, fully behind that. And now the state is all doing essentially what that first Dallas County order did, uh, we're doing a safer-at-home stance.
5: Yeah, you know what? You, you've you been the Dallas County judge there for almost 10 years now. You led the charge against West Nile virus back in 2012, Ebola in 2014. Give us a sense, in terms of all the work you've done, how does this virus compare to the previous two?
7: Well, it's, it's more complex, uh, Amy. A lot of it, you know, treating people the way you want to be treated, um, staying calm so others around you can be calm, that's the same. But I'll give you a, a fact uh, on this, Amy. Uh, 70% of the people who are going to the North Texas Food Bank since COVID started are brand new, uh, Mm. you know, customers. So that's depleted our food bank. Amy, here's some great news for you. We lobbied and changed the law yesterday, uh, myself and a a man named Tony Robinson, uh, so that now the federal government can can give money to food banks. And that not just helps the uh, people here in North Texas, but that'll help the food banks throughout the United States. So if you're... uh, have a food bank anywhere. And you're listening to this, um, let the food bank know you can now put in what's called a star request to the federal government and get your shelves restocked.
5: That is incredible. Judge Clay Jenkins, thank you so much for your leadership and all of your efforts to fight COVID-19 and protect all the people in the state of Texas. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Amy. NFL pro Myron Roll went from the football field to the front lines of this pandemic as a doctor. A Rhodes Scholar drafted to the Tennessee Titans in 2010. Myron left football after three years to attend medical school. Now a third year neuroscience resident at Massachusetts General Hospital. He is joining us right now. And Myron, thank you so much for being with us. I imagine your life has drastically changed over the past few weeks. Give us a sense of what your workday looks like now.
8: Well, thank you very much for having me. The workday has certainly changed and transformed. Typically, we'll go in and round on patients and get ready for the operating room, uh, go through a whole day of brain and spine or peripheral nerve surgery, and then round on our patients at night. And if we're staying 24 hours, we'll stay and cover the emergency department. But now, because of COVID-19, our operating rooms have slowed down. We have less rooms going, only urgent or emergent cases, and only select elective cases. Our neurosurgical outpatient clinics are now virtually done. But we call our patients up with their CT scan or MRI results. Our neurosurgical floor is transformed into a COVID-19 only floor. And myself and a few other colleagues have dedicated ourselves and submitted ourselves to the hospital within a hospital surge clinic to help manage COVID-19 patients who come in off the street. So certainly much different experience than I have my first three years here mm. at General Hospital, but one that we're willing to do because these patients are very vulnerable, and we're doing the best we
5: can for them. Oh, and I know I speak on behalf of every American. Thank you, and thank you to your colleagues for all that you do each and every day and all night. And I've heard your former Tennessee Titans teammates have been reaching out to you, and they're asking you to tell them the real story on this virus. What are you telling them? What do you say to them?
8: Well, I, I do. I, I sort of see myself as a confidential informant for my <laughs> former brothers, my former teammates. And I love that connection. Obviously, I went into neurosurgery and medicine because it's a passion of mine. But if I can have a link to my whole life being a football player, it's wonderful. I'm telling them that the influx of patients is high. I'm telling them that... Uh, most of the patients that we're seeing here now are by themselves because there's a no-visitor-allowed policy, so you're sort of estranged and left alone in, in a way, and dealing with a very, very novel virus that can be very fatal as we've seen. I'm telling them that you know there's certain disproportionate demographics that are being hit very hard. Black, brown, low socioeconomic backgrounds, uh, and then certainly the older and ones with pre-existing conditions. So I'm telling them that there's a lot going on right now. We're trying to be active, trying to be proactive and aggressive at the moves we make here at Mass General Hospital and around the country to try to get on top of this and thwart uh, this virus so that we can get back to a sense of normalcy.
5: Yeah, no, I know that's what we all want. And I'm curious, you mentioned the moves you make. Is there anything you learned on the football field that you're taking with you into the hospital each day as you help battle this virus?
8: That's a great question. I've played football since I was six years old, uh, from Florida State to the Tennessee Titans, as you mentioned. Uh, and now as a physician, I'm seeing a lot of crossover traits, things that I developed as an athlete on practice fields, game fields, weight room, locker room with my teammates. Discipline and focus for sure, preparation, hard work, teamwork getting involved in a team of people who may be different than you, come from different specialties, may have different interests, but we all have a collective goal to help these very vulnerable people with COVID-19. But I think the best crossover trait for me has been mitigating pressure and being able to be flexible.
5: Yeah, you know, and I'm sure your patients and your fellow physicians are certainly great for, for all that you bring into that hospital each and every day. Dr. Myron Roll, thank you so much for being with us and thank you again for your
8: service. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks.
5: Coming up next right here, when we come back, new ways to find joy in a world in total upheaval, a conversation I think we can all use today. We'll be right back.
0: This ABC News special continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent, Amy Robach.
5: It has definitely been hard not to feel overwhelmed and anxious during these times. Everyone is scared and searching for some sense of normalcy. And here to share self-help tips and remind us why we must find joy in a time of crisis is New York Times best-selling author, CEO, podcaster, and motivational speaker, Rachel Hollis. Rachel, first of all, thank you for being with us and tell us how you and your family are doing right now.
9: Oh, Thank you so much for having me. Uh, We're doing as good as you can hope to do while you are working at home with four kids. (laughs) The first week was pretty hard, but we're in week five of quarantine. So it feels like we found a rhythm now.
5: Yeah, I think a lot of people are starting to figure it out. But this is still a time of total uncertainty. No one knows when it ends. No one knows what comes next. What is your do you have like a
9: number one overarching piece of advice? So one of the things that I think everyone could benefit from right now is focusing on what you can control. So much of this feels outside the realm of what we're capable of controlling, but if you focus on what you have around you, um, I've been, I know it sounds silly, but I've been cleaning a ton. I've been organizing (laughs) like my silverware drawer, just focusing on little tiny tasks that will give me a sense of achievement and allow me to feel like I have some control of the order of my life has really helped my mindset a lot.
5: Yeah, I've been cleaning a lot too. If you heard me laughing um, it, it, for some reason, it does feel good. I don't want to keep doing it for too much longer, but right now it's it's getting me through. All right. You also have some tips on how we can continue to get through the next few weeks at home. Um, The first thing you say is create stability.
9: What is that? So what matters so much right now is that you cling to the rituals and habits that you had before all of this started that were really good for you. So things like getting a workout in, drinking your water, practicing gratitude, clinging to your faith. What were those things that were really helpful for you before, like two months ago? Those matter more than ever right now. Agreed. All right. And you also say your next tip is to not think
5: of this time as a challenge, but as an opportunity. Sounds nice. How do we do it?
9: So one of the most powerful questions you can ask yourself is, How can this be for you? And I know that that's so much easier said than done. And it sounds a bit like Pollyanna, but for someone like me, I am a business owner. I have 60 employees. And so when this shifted, um, a huge part of my revenue is in live events and that's not something I can do anymore. So I had a few days, I'm going to be honest, I had a few days where I drank a little too much vodka because I was like, oh crap. Um, (laughs) But as a leader, it is your responsibility and a leader in business or a leader for your family, it is your responsibility to look for help how you can move forward. How can you change? How can you adapt? How can you pivot in this time? You have to look for it because if you look for it, I swear you will find the opportunity in this season.
5: You know, I've heard it say, said, things don't happen to you, they happen for you. And so you gotta figure Absolutely. out what that is. That makes a lot of sense to me. All right, your next tip is to edit your social media intake. And you say that is very important. Why?
9: Because we become what we consume and right now there yes there's media out there that is joyful and positive and, and uplifting and funny and then there's also things that are purposely trying to scare you that are that want you to come back and check again and again and again and that can cause people to spiral out so it's just really important right now that you are mindful of what you take in and if that means that you need to edit the people that you follow or maybe you even need to remove social media from your phone for a while because it's making you feel anxious do what you need to do to feel strong and don't set yourself up for disaster like pay attention if you were feeling great and then a couple hours later you're having a massive anxiety ask yourself what set you off what was the trigger oftentimes it's something that we consume that scared us And so if you can sort of go around that, you can navigate and lower the chances that you're going to feel the negative emotions. All right. And finally, you say choose joy. How can we do that? Yes. I know that this sounds so much easier said than done, but y'all, you can choose it. I think one of the beautiful things about being human is that we can hold both joy and pain simultaneously. You can be in a hard Uncertain season, and you can still look for moments of levity. So, one of the things that I suggest is make a list of things that make you happy. Make a joy list. What is on that that you can access right now? Like, I love a great cup of coffee. That's something I can make in my kitchen. I love luxurious sweatpants. Like, I am wearing <laughs> nice on top. I'm literally I'm in sweatpants <laughs> down below. I'm doing what I can with what I've got. But seriously, looking for things that can make me feel happy that I can access inside of quarantine that I can plan my day and be sure and incorporate some of those things.
5: Yeah, and it gives you a little power back because you do get to decide that. I love your tips. Rachel Hollis, thank you so much for joining us. We certainly appreciate it. Thank you for spreading that joy. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We turn once again to ABC chief medical correspondent, Dr. Jen Ashton, with a fresh list of your questions that have been coming in about this health emergency. And so, Dr. Jen, we'll start with the first one. I think we talked about vitamin D early Mm -hmm. on in this. Could vitamin D deficiency lead to a poor prognosis with COVID-19? It
6: could, Amy, but underscore the word could. Right now, as we know, you've heard me say it so many times, there's a difference between scientific studies based on association or observation and those based on cause cause and effect and a biologic mechanism. So here's what we know about vitamin D association right now with viral respiratory infections. There are some studies that show an association between people with low vitamin D levels and an increased risk of viral infections like influenza. They are looking at it right now with COVID-19 as well, but it's too early uh, for any conclusive data or outcome yet. But we have to remember risk versus benefit uh, to get a little bit extra vitamin D. D3, 1,000, a, a 2,000 units a day, probably not going to cause any harm, could have some benefit. But if you go to too high levels, there can be some risks involved, namely an increased risk of kidney stones.
5: So not conclusive yet, but it's being looked at. Okay. Our next question, how careful should we be in consuming meat from grocery stores? Outbreaks of COVID-19 have happened in meatpacking plants. So two issues there. The meatpacking
6: plant itself, and we know that is critically important to our economy and to our society. We need to have meat in our agricultural supply. So that's one issue of whether there's infection in the manufacturing facility. The other issue is whether COVID-19 can be transmitted via uncooked meat or food in general. And right now there is zero evidence of that. So cook and clean it well as you would normally do any raw meat before you bring it into your home and while you're
5: preparing it. Yep. All right. I think that's good advice indeed. As always, Dr. Jen, and you could submit your questions to Dr. Ashton on her Instagram at Dr. J. Ashton. Coming up next right here when we come back, the record plunge in retail sales, the new numbers, and the Shark Tank investor with the moves entrepreneurs can make right now to help steady the ship, and the Million Mask Challenge, calling all those who are good with a needle, and even those who aren't so good, we'll be right back.
0: This ABC News special continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19 what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent, Amy Robach.
5: We are back with the new retail sales numbers in March, plunging a record 8.7% in this pandemic and so many small businesses finding themselves struggling just to stay afloat. Here to offer a lifeline and share a strategy is Shark Tank investor and author of Power Shift, businessman, Damon John. Damon, thanks so much for being with us. And we all know that small businesses are struggling to stay afloat, but you have some tips to help get them back on track So let's start with your first tip, which is to check your inventory.
10: Yeah, you have to check what you're in control of. What's your inventory? So first of all, it's going to be probably your staff and then how much physical inventory you have, how much space do you have, and more importantly, your Rolodex. Who do you call to do collaborations with and or use to get product out and or to do more business with?
5: All right. And then you also say you need to check to see that if you qualify for a stimulus package or any kind of relief program.
10: Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's another two hundred fifty billion dollars stimulus package coming out. But, you know, you have to make sure that you go to a bank that you are already doing business with, because before you think about laying off or cutting your staff, I mean, listen, if you're in a high touch business, you're going to have to make some uh, hard decisions. if You have nobody coming Mm -hmm. through your door. But uh, if you are available for the stimulus package, You have three months to, of course, you know, uh, be able to pay your staff to try to get through these times.
5: Yeah. And some small businesses may even qualify for the payment protection plan, which is all part of the CARES Act relief package that Congress just passed. So as long as 75 percent of the money is used for payroll, they potentially have 25 percent available for other things. So what should you do with that?
10: So whether it's a stimulus package or anything else, the only time that you take in funding or use extra money is for either two reasons. Number one, you need uh, more inventory because you cannot keep up with production, not more inventory to advertise to try to get more sales or you need more machinery and machinery today can be software. It could be some reason that you need to be on social media and or more equipment to get on social media. But you either use it for if you cannot keep up with demand, whether you are selling maybe workout equipment or at home delivery for food or more machinery to convert into maybe making PPE products because you already were a manufacturer and you know now more PPE products are needed.
5: Yeah, you say also to invest in outlets to gain new customers uh, because customers can't buy anything if they don't know it's there.
10: Yeah, 100%. So what if you were somebody who was selling workout clothes and now you don't have the people, the foot traffic going by? Well, I've seen a lot of people now do collaborations with people who maybe uh, were selling, uh, you know, natural juices or various other things and say, hey, offer your customers 25% off of my products. And it's a win for everybody. You get to move your products, the end customer gets 25% off of stuff they never would have gotten 25% off of. And the juice company now gives more value to their customers. Their customers feel like they gave them more value. It's a win for all three. got to collaborate.
5: Yeah, that's a great idea. And, and we know, obviously, this is a tough time for so many businesses. But sometimes you say a recession can bring a silver lining. Your book, you talk about a power shift that could apply directly to this situation. So what advice do you have to offer businesses along those lines?
10: Yeah, many people now are going to work from home. They're going to find out they didn't need, uh, you know, 100,000 square feet. And they're going to find out also that some of the things that were really something you would have never thought of was needed two months ago or three months ago is needed now. In the last recession, you know, Airbnb, uh, Uber, Square, Pinterest, uh, WhatsApp all came out of the last recession in 2008 to 10. So this is the opportune time for those who are just starting out who have forward thinking visions can go out there and really become the next super large company.
5: Yeah, there are new needs now that we never knew we needed before. Damon John, thank you for those very important tips. We certainly appreciate it. Be well. Thank you. We're going to turn now for our final thoughts with Dr. Jen Ashton. Dr. Jen, I know that so many of us have been focused on all of the physical symptoms that have come from COVID-19, people checking uh, to see how they're feeling physically, but there is a new study out from the New England Journal of Medicine that talks about the mental impact of this coronavirus pandemic.
6: Exactly, Amy. And you know, it's so important not to neglect from the neck up. We do tend to focus more on the neck down. But this was an article that really did a deep dive on the psychological consequences, the mental health effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. And basically, whether that occurs to an individual or to a community, um, found that in settings of disaster, an emotional reaction is literally ubiquitous. And it can range from distress and stress to exacerbation of pre-existing psychological uh, conditions. People who have had struggles with anxiety, depression in the past, obviously are at greater risk. Um, But so are people who have been infected or sick with COVID-19 themselves, healthcare workers or people with a history of substance abuse. So this really brought to the forefront how we have to pay as much attention to our mental
5: health as well as our physical health. All right, Dr. Jen, thank you for giving us all the important information we need to know. And still ahead here on What You Need to Know, a stitch in time, the helping hands keeping very busy with a needle and thread, making masks and a lot of them, how you can get involved too. We're back in a moment.
0: This ABC News special continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, What You Need to Know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach.
5: Mr. Rogers famously said that when times are scary, we should look for the helpers. Well, here now are two of those helpers to tell us how they are using their sewing talents to aid the coronavirus relief effort. Joining us from Cleveland, Ohio, are Jan and Connor Brostek. Thank you both for being with us. And Connor, first, start off by telling us a little bit about your family business.
11: Um, Well, the business is locally as pins and needles. We started uh, before I was even born. And we have three locations in Cleveland, and we sell the machines, we teach classes, and we do a ton of the events. Um, It's sort of like a big community. I would say it's like I have uh, hundreds of grandmas. And then over the last five years, I've pivoted to go on the Internet as times have been changing um, to take that to thousands of grandmas. So instead of getting a class here and events here, we do online classes and courses Um, on the internet at sewedonline.com.
5: And I'm sure up until a few weeks ago, you weren't even imagining sewing face masks. So Jan, how did you get involved with making those masks for the pandemic?
12: University Hospital here in Cleveland called me up and just said, we need help. We need 100,000 masks. We need them quickly. Hmm. What do we do? So from their recommendations, we developed a pattern. They approved the pattern to start off. We found fabric donated we got cutters to cut it, we got kits, and then Connor and I did a video because we had to teach our customers how to do this, both online as well as in the stores. So we did a video, it went viral. We started a Million Mask Challenge because we wanted to have some fun with it too so people could help each other and post how many they've made. We thought a million was a, a big number and we've surpassed 20 million already wow. from all
5: over the world. That is remarkable. I just got chills hearing that. That is so incredible. And I understand, also, Jan, that the hospital that you just mentioned that reached out to you has a very special meaning for your family. Tell us about that.
12: Uh, my daughter was very sick about three years ago, and we spent about nine months at University Hospital, and I was there every single day. So to give back. Is, is just the way charity always works. Everything we do always goes around full circle, and it's really good, good to be able to be a
5: part of that. And I know people want to be a part of this as well. So, Connor, we heard 20 million masks and counting. How can everyone get involved as well?
11: Uh, so it's simple. You can go to soldonline.com. You can download our patterns, our videos are on the YouTube channel for Sold Online. If you don't have a machine, we have machines on Sold Online. And then simply sew it out. And then we ask that you donate to your local communities or anyone in need. Everyone needs these masks. This is not ending. It's going to continue and need these masks as the pandemic continues. And then use the hashtag million mask challenge to show where you donated.
5: Uh, Do you have a new number, a new goal in mind now that you were at 20 million already? It's absolutely shocking
12: how many hospitals, how many nursing homes, how many people call us the police department on a daily basis. It's all I can say is we're not halfway there. We need to keep going.
5: Thank you so much, Jan and Connor Brostek, for all that you have done, all that you're continuing to do and how you're inspiring everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And that's our program for today. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening.
0: ABC News, honored, winner of four Edward R. Murrow Awards. ABC News, America's number one news choice.